Before we get started, I want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by the Steady Beat Survival Guide. In this free ebook, I share my top 20 favorite songs and chants for Steady Beat in the elementary music classroom. To grab your free copy, head on over to thatmusicteacher.com slash steadybeat. Again, that's thatmusicteacher.com slash steadybeat. You can also check out the show notes wherever you're listening to this episode now. You're listening to That Music Podcast with Bryson Tarbett, the curriculum designer and educational consultant behind That Music Teacher and the Elementary Music Summit. Each week, Bryson and his guests will dive into the reality of being an elementary music teacher and how music can truly be transformative in the lives of the students you serve. Show notes and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at thatmusicteacher.com. Hello and welcome back to That Music Podcast. I am extra excited for this conversation all about what an IEP is, what are some of the main aspects of an IEP, and then the reality of what that means for us as music teachers. Um, so for this episode, I brought the wonderful Stephanie Powell to chat with me about this. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day and chatting with me and my audience about something that is so incredibly important. Of course. Thank you again for having me. I always appreciate the platform to talk about these subjects and and give more access to more kiddos, give more music access to more kiddos. So I know that, you know, obviously we've had many a conversation about um, <laughs> this topic and similar topics on the podcast way back in the day um, on the Instagram live calls I used to do. Um, but I'm really glad to, are really excited to dive deep into kind of the nitty gritty of an IEP because I'll be honest, when before I finished undergrad and kind of went into the world of outside of the music classroom, I had absolutely no idea what an IP was. Like I knew that it was a plan that I had to um, follow, but like beyond that, I hadn't, I knew nothing. Um, so before we get too far into the weeds, can you remind my audience, who are you? What is like a, a little bit of a background about your, um, your experience in education and then music education? I'd love for my audience to be able to get to know you a little better. Yeah, of course. Um, so I am, I call myself an adaptive music teacher. Um, I started out as a behavior tech and then started working for a private school um, in that you can listen to other things, but started uh, started teaching music there um, for, for a small private school with mostly children on the autism spectrum and a few other um, disabilities here and there. Um, so I still have, am teaching um, for the same school, and I also do private lessons, group lessons, um, training, things like that. Um, I actually just left a church choir to help with some of their students get ready for the Christmas program. So I'm a little, a little tired right now. <laughs> but um, anyways, so that's kind of the gist of what I do and who I am as far as music um, and working with kids with special needs goes. Awesome. And I'll be sure to link um, our previous episode and conversations that we've had in the show notes. So if you want more of Stephanie, definitely, definitely check those links out. Um, links in the, the show notes as well. But let's go ahead and dive into the real core of today's episode, which is accessibility and kind of zooming in a little bit farther in on what an IEP is. So before we talk about and the IEP specifically, can you briefly describe what is your philosophy on accessibility and what that really means um, to have an accessible classroom? To me, that just means giving every student the best possible chance that they 
can have to reach their potential and to, to be the best that they can be. And for me, because I work in a lot of different areas that covers a lot of things, but in music, um, I just like to always assume that these guys can do and they can participate and they can understand music and play music and use music. Um, it looks different for everybody, but um, I believe that we should give them the best chance and not just kind of mow over it and do the bare minimum. I agree completely. Um, and as I'm sure we are fully aware, we've had lots of conversations on this. Um, but what are some things that are commonly done wrong? Or what are some common misconceptions about what accessibility is and then what that practice actually looks like in implement implementation? Um, sure. I think the most common things that I've seen are just either... Um, just kind of trying to entertain rather than to teach, um, trying to just teach a whole group without giving any sort of accommodations to those who need it. Um, and just not, not taking the time to understand. Um, I've seen some really silliness and some just, you know, having a good time, um, which is good in moderation and at certain times, but, that was, that was the whole curriculum. Um, and then I've seen some just, you know, um, we're just going to talk at you and say we did this and I don't really know what else to do with you kind of situations. Um, and I think that's at no fault really to most teachers. Um, nobody tells you how to do this. <laughs> uh, there's not a lot of um, inclusion-based information in higher education. Um, I do... Um, the, my first inspiration for this, honestly, was in my very early days, um, we had a PE coach who did have some inclusion training and he was taught how to adapt his curriculum to those with special needs. And I was like, whoa, wait a second. Why? That's awesome. <laughs> um, and then as I got into music, I like went back to that idea and I was like, we all need that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a lot of, of what I've seen is just people don't know. People don't know, teachers don't know, because it's not taught to them. They're not given the opportunity to, to try it and to learn it. Um, so they're just doing the best that they can. I think you bring up a really good point where um, a lot of times we see people that are really trying and they're they're trying to make sure that, that all students have a place in their classroom. But sometimes the actual implementation of it can be a little lacking and it kind of becomes a, a placeholder curriculum rather than actually truly making steps and decisions and actions that help them access the, curricula the curriculum that's already there um, and the curriculum that they would receive maybe if they weren't disabled or if, you know, they didn't have an IEP, but like, Mm -hmm. doing more than just having fun and laughing. Obviously, that's fun. That's awesome. That's awesome. We should definitely do that. But kids are capable of doing so much more. And sometimes we kind of get so um, worried about failure that we get in the way of ourselves and the way of our students to allow them to show us what they really can do. Um, and yeah. And, and music is such a tool for so many other things. Um, and it, and it, um, enhances and enables them in so many areas, whether it's language or motor skills or social skills or social emotional um, behaviors and, and learning to calm down or learning to express themselves. It, it's not even necessarily just about learning notes and playing notes or singing notes or whatever it is you're working on. It, it helps in so many other ways um, that it's just a shame to, to not give those kids 
that tool. 100%. So let's go ahead and dive into an IEP. So before we get too far in, a lot of this information is going to be a little bit more centered about education here in the United States, mm -hmm. but I'm sure that there are parallels that can be found um, outside of the United States as well. So even if you're outside of the U.S. listening, I feel like there's definitely some stuff in here that you're going to be finding really useful. Um, so stick around with us. Um, before we get yes. too far in, Stephanie, yes. what is an IEP? Oh, an IEP. <laughs> so an IEP is an individual educational plan. Um, the IEP, so an IEP, I just want to create some perspective here um, because I want you to come at the IEP with just some understanding. Um, an IEP is a big deal. It's not something they just give to people. Um, it's not something that is easy to get. It is a long process. It is a lot of testing. There are a lot of people involved. Um, and then there's a lot of follow-up to it. So your teachers and your um, assistants and and some of the kids get like one-on-one -on -one staff. They're all required to keep data and to track goals and to, to do all this reporting. Um, and then you have meetings and you have more meetings and you have to make amendments and and I promise you that there are tears cried and swear words spoken over every IEP that you will come across. Um, it's just a big deal. So when it's given to you or when you get access to it, I just think about it from that perspective because they can be frustrating. They can be very copy and paste and a little bit hard to like understand. Why would you say this? Why would you do this? Um, and, and they, they can be a, a problem, but they're also a good tool um, to use to keep everybody kind of on the same page, to give some direction to how to help this kid in the school year, um, how to help the student and to, to provide better for them. Um, so just, Think of all points of view when you're looking at an IP and um, not just that it's frustrating because, yeah, it is, but it's frustrating for a lot of people. Um, but it also has a, a pretty definite purpose. And if we're if we're all using it, um, then we can do a little bit better and be more on the same page for the student that it was written for. I really like that perspective shift because I think it really is important for us to remember that. You, no one just gets an IEP. It is a process. And it is, it can be a really a tough process and a really emotional process. And a lot of, you know, a lot of time went into put, to creating this, especially those initial IEPs. Um, so yes, you know, they, they can create some, create some hurdles in our, in our teaching. The reality is, is those hurdles are there for us as teachers, the professionals, so that we can remove those, those hurdles for our mm -hmm. students accessing our curriculum. So I know that you talked about access in a curriculum, and I know this is one of those soapboxes that both of us will, will, will <laughs> gladly come up on, but who has access to an IEP? And really, how can music teachers advocate for the fact that, yes, we do have access to an IEP and we need it? Yeah. Um, so anyone working with a student in the school system um, legally has access to the IEP. Um, it is my opinion that you have a responsibility to at least see the IEP. And I know that sounds very overwhelming when you're teaching large classes and large students or, or large groups of students. 
Um, and, and you may have a bunch of these kids or IEP kids in your class. Um, and we're going to go over like a little bit of how to pull out pieces of information to help you, what to look at, what to, to skip over. Um, but um, there, there, there are some things that you just need to know for safety reasons. Um, you need to know if a student has a seizure disorder. You need to know if a student has a severe allergy. You need to know if a student is likely to run off and leave you because if you decide to have music class outside on a very beautiful day, or if your air conditioner has gone out in your classroom and you have to move outside or whatever, like you, you need to be aware of these safety things. So, um, I, I vote that it's, it's a, a responsibility to at least know those sorts of things for anyone who's going to be in contact with the student. Um, advocating, you shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to try to get an IEP. It shouldn't be that hard um, because, again, you have a legal responsibility to it. So, um, yeah, if you're not given or offered an IEP right away, um, I would start with the student's teacher. Um, and then if, for whatever reason, um, they don't give it to you, um, just keep going up because there's no reason for anybody to deny that to you. Um, you are a teacher. Um, you are in their program, in their schedule. Um, there's no reason for you to not have it. I agree completely. And like just on the, the legal side of things, you know, as instructors, we are legally obligated to apply any of the adaptations and modifications that are listed in their IEP into our curriculum. And so if we're not in compliance with that, we are not in compliance with the IEP. And we can't do that if we don't know what's in it. So obviously we need to make sure that we're keeping our IEPs and all those types of documents confidential. But uh, you've told me previously that you actually have an IEP today that you've uh, been given permission to kind of share out bits and pieces as we kind of talk through that. Can you kind of share how you've got permission for that? Yeah, um, of course. So um, I, one of my um, private students, um, his mom is just super supportive of all that we do. So I asked if I could have a redacted copy of one of his past IEPs to use as a reference to kind of walk through um, and use some examples on how we can make music a little more accessible, how we can equip teachers to better use an IEP um, in their classrooms. And she was um, super willing to do that. So I will be referring to it a few times probably and maybe reading some specific examples without using his name or any sort of identifying information. Perfect. I can't wait to dive in. So speaking of what's in it, um, I know there are definitely some people that are listening that are going, yo, I have so many students. I don't have time to read through these entire like long IEPs and find the information that is helpful. So first of all, what type of information is typically found inside an IEP? Yeah, yeah, good point. So when you had me speak in the summit and I mentioned IEPs, like immediately, I mean, there were just like 20 questions. And, you know, I really honestly, from my failure to think of another person's perspective, never really gave consideration to the fact that people have never been taught how to get them or how to read them or what to do with them. Um, I took a three-hour course in college and had to write it and research it and figure all the people involved. In it. Like I, I had that because that was my field of study, but no one offered that to you because you were studying music and then why would you need that? 
Um, so I, I went through and I tried to break it down to the, to like the five main components of an IEP. So I'm going to run through those real quick. Um, the first is the present level of performance. Then um, it's going to talk about the goals. Um, and those should be broken up into like short-term goals and long-term goals. Um, third should mention the services that the child is receiving um, through the school. Um, and that can be ABA therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy. Those are usually the ones that are involved in school. Um, and then fourth is going to talk about the least restrictive environment. And fifth is accommodations. Um, so if you want, we can go through each of those and I'll kind of talk about what you can pull out of that and look for in that and um, sex, section by section, if that sounds good to you. I would definitely love to chat about those because again, there's a lot of information in each of these sections, mm -hmm. but the reality is some of the information really won't be incredibly helpful in our classroom. Like, yeah, it might give us some background information, um, but I would love your opinion on how we can really find the the nuggets of things that really are going to be make, be the most impactful in our classroom in the music environment. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go to it. Um, so the first is the present level of performance. Um, I believe that this can be very helpful for you um, when you're planning ahead in your curriculum. If you know what the student is currently doing, then you can kind of um, throw in um, a worksheet that they can do or um, think about some ideas of how to adapt a game that you want to play or um, whatever it is that you're planning. If you already know what kind of changes you need to make ahead of time, um, that's where you can get that information, their present level of performance. Now, the second thing I'll say about this um, is you are a music class. You're not um, a typical ESE class. I mean, some people are. Some of you listening, hi, Rebecca, are probably ESE only students. Um, but for the most part, as a music teacher, you've got a good mixture of students. Um, so I would say your goal is for the student to participate and for them to learn something. Um, so I would even back down a step or so of what they already know. I would go to something easier because you're going to be more likely to get compliance when it's something that they definitely can do easily. So if you have a student who, um, let's see, I have a kindergarten, uh, uh, yeah, a kindergarten IEP in front of me. So the student is able to um, match items that look the same. Um, so if the student is already able to match items that look the same, um, and I'm going to teach quarter notes and half notes, um, then I'm only going to at first have him match quarter notes. I'm not going to put the half notes in there. Um, but I can have him find it. I can have him put a card, two cards together. I can have him match it on boom cards, something like that. Something that he can already do, I would have him do that. Um, that way you're not fighting the learning and the behavior part. You're just using what they for sure already know so that they can comfortably and willingly participate in what you're doing. Does that make sense? For sure. I, I think that's a great way to, to get things started and to make sure that we're not um, – again, leading with things that really are just kind of blocking the access to the curriculum. And we're really starting from where they are and starting with what they've already shown they're able to do and then applying that in our own 
situation. Yeah. So um, that's that's where you're going to learn those things and and get some ideas on how to um, make it easy enough that they can participate, but also give them something that they can learn. I think that's the biggest goal there is to meet them where they're already at. Um, So that's that's going to look like um, let's see. Yeah. Here it is. Present level of academic achievement and functional performances. So there's like this big paragraph about all the things that he can do. Now, reading this IEP that I have in front of me for this kindergarten student, it says that he can request desired items using his AAC device. So he has some sort of like iPad or um, the big boxes with the words on them that he can request things that he needs. So I would use that information and I would say, um, hey, Mrs. ESE teacher, um, is it possible or or probably it would probably be your speech, um, your SLP who would have control of his box. It, it's all going to depend. So find out who has control of adding things to that. And I would say, can we add these vocabulary words that we're going to learn this quarter to his AAC device? And that way she can work on it with him in his 30 minutes or an hour or 90 minutes of speech that he gets every week. And he can learn those vocabulary words, and then he can practice them and use them in music class. Um, What else do we have in here? Let's see. Mm, Sorry, there's like giant paragraphs. So I want to make sure I give you useful things. Um, Okay, this is talking about he's able to identify feelings and emotions with 70% accuracy, mad, angry, happy, sad. That's totally something we could use in a music lesson um, when we're listening to music and we want to identify moods um, or how a song makes us feel or what can we do if we feel angry. We can stomp, we can clap, um, whatever kind of your curriculum moves around. Those are just like three quick examples from his IEP um, of ways that I would use um, his current abilities to uh, to incorporate him better into my music class. Um, so the second part is his goals. Um, you might want to glance at these. Goals are almost always going to be more focused on his academics and maybe even some of his therapy stuff. Um, I'm saying his, I mean the students, sorry, on the students' academics or therapy um, goals, it's usually not going to say, you know, can clap out rhythms um, or uh, sing do, re, mi, fa, so. It's not, it's not usually going to be specific to your music stuff, and it's usually going to be the things that that are requiring data. Um, so you're most likely not going to be included in that. So that's something that it might be helpful if you kind of know what they're working on, if you want to kind of come alongside and reinforce those things. But if you're in a, if you're just trying to get through some IEPs and write some curriculum and, and that's not your main objective, I wouldn't spend a ton of time on that. I think that's a great, um, I, I like just peeking at the goals personally. Um, like you said, a lot of, you know, 
none of my students have musical goals in their IEPs. Um, but sometimes, like, there's definitely some things that I, I can find useful, especially if, like, if there's a student that's really struggling on a certain concept, mm-hmm. sometimes looking at their goals, I'm like, okay, well, they're still, you know, one of their goals is, like, a reading, still still working on tracking. Well, yeah, if they're, if they're working on tracking left to right in the general classroom, yeah. they're probably going to struggle with tracking left to right in my classroom as well. So it's just a little bit of um, good background information that can be helpful as well. Um, yeah. But like you said, it's not really what I spend the most time when I'm looking at an IP. Yeah, I would I would definitely keep it around for reference. I mean, any any parts of the IEP, I would keep it around for reference. Um, and like you said, if you notice a space where they're struggling, maybe maybe go back and check on that and see if we're missing something or if something was left out or if they're just not there yet. And you can usually tell that by the what they're working on and their present level of performance. Um, so yeah, I would definitely keep it as a reference and, and go back and reference that. Um, the next part is their services. So this is um, where you're going to find your helpers. Um, so as I mentioned a while ago, the, the therapists that they're most likely going to see in a, in a school setting um, are ABA, speech, OT, occupational therapy, um, physical therapy, and maybe some sort of, I mean, some places have like behavior techs who come in or um, the school counselor may be involved for some emotional, social, emotional sort of things. Um, those would probably be included in that as well. Um, so this is where if you need to make some sort of physical adaptation, if you need a handy device to um, help a kid hold something better or reach something better or make better selections, um, talk to your physical therapist. If you need to make adjustments or add information to the um, AAC devices or learn some new sign language because you don't know how to communicate with the student that um, maybe is nonverbal but uses sign language or is deaf but doesn't have an interpreter for whatever reason. Um, those are the people that you're going to talk to. Um, if you if you don't know very much about some of these therapies, especially like ABA can be very um, broad and they can cover a very big group of things, um, talk to them, make some contact with them, shoot some emails back and forth, um, see what you can do because you're probably going to um, need them. If they're in certain therapies, they may have a push-in who comes in with them. Um, you need to kind of know what they do and what their expectations are, what your expectations are um, in order to work together to best help the student. Um, so that's where the services part is where you find your helpers. Um, and then I would even be as bold and you may not always get the response you want, but it really doesn't hurt to ask, but to say, hey, we're working on hitting a drum and this student um, seems to have some motor planning and doesn't always hit the drum in the center or has trouble going faster and slower. Could y'all maybe work on that in therapy? Um, could you just play around with that? Could, uh, could y'all work on that so that we can also work on it in music and they have a little bit better success? Like I vote that everybody is helping the student together. And um, sometimes they have very strict goals that are going to require all their time. and They may not be able to meet that. But I think that you'll find that most of the time that they want to help the student, 
and they are willing to, to jump in and help out with some of those things as well. I love that you refer to this section as the helpers um, <laughs> because it, it is true. Like it's, this is the people like, all right, who are the people that are essentially on their, their educational team that you can reach out for things, you know, their intervention specialists will likely be listed here. Um, if there's any yeah. sort of like specific instruction that they're getting um, through the IS. Um, and, and I think this is a good way to think of this section, you know, not, it's not something that is necessarily super incredibly helpful for us as of like what's in it, but yes. the information of who's in it can be, especially when we get those um, things where we're struggling and we're like, all right, I'm kind of out of tricks. Um, yes. I, I need some new ideas. And that's where that conversation piece can really come in. Yeah. Tricks and gadgets. They always have tricks and gadgets. Um, we both talk a lot about schedules and creating visual schedules and making schedules that the kids can see. I promise you that your speech and language people have like drawers full of pictures. And if you just said, Hey, can I go, can I have like five pictures to create the schedule? They'd be like, yeah, I probably have that. Go check that drawer. Go check this. Here you go. Like just ask, it will save you some time. You won't have to recreate everything. If you, um, reach out to those helpers and, and see what they already have available to you. Um, it just, it doesn't hurt anything. I agree. I, it's just talk to the people that are part of the team. I mean, I'll be honest. Sometimes you're going to get people that are like, I'm too busy. I have mm -hmm. a hundred students on my caseload. Um, but then sometimes you'll be like, Hey, Oh, it's just this easy thing that you can try. And mm -hmm. it can be completely transformative. So I, I'm always one of those people that even if I'm going to, um, let's say push people those buttons the wrong way every once in a while. If it's for the sake of the student, I will gladly push those buttons. <laughs> sure. Or you can always ask a parent or a teacher to shoot an email to those people too and ask for some help. Just, just get everybody on the same team. <laughs> but in general, I think that everyone does want to help the kids. Yes. I mean, we all have too big of a caseload, like for real. But I think the when everyone's approaching it with let's help the kids, then then everyone's going to be more likely to work together. Um, there are those outliers and I'm very, I have some names. Um, I know these people, but um, ask, 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 just go for it. <laughs> um, so the fourth section is the least restrictive environment. Um Basically, if they're in your class, then somebody's already determined that this is their least restrictive environment. So there's not too much that you necessarily need to know there, except for like, don't put your hands on a kid, um, which we should know that anyways. Unless you are um, crisis management trained, if there's a behavior situation, you, re you really shouldn't have to do any sort of restraints or anything like that. There should already be, pe there should already be people in place for those sorts of things. Um, so your room has already been determined as a least restrictive environment and a least restrictive environment just means that this is the best place with the least amount of, um, restrictions, um, that they feel like the student can learn. Um, now you do need to be aware of what that means and what that, um, requires and it's probably going to be a little bit different and translated a little bit differently in your school and in your ESU departments or um, special education departments. So um, if you are struggling with a student um, that you feel like is just not doing well for one reason or another and really, really, really absolutely should not be in your classroom, um, 
I would go to that, kind of ask some questions about that, find out what that looks like in your um, district and how that's interpreted and maybe use that to help that student find a better spot. That's the best scenario in which I think you'll really need that section. Um, but for the most part, if they're in your classroom, then then that's already been determined. So you have anything else to add to that? <laughs> no, I think that, you know, there are, there are many uh, discussions to be had about least restrictive environment, um, especially in the music classroom. Um, but I think you bring up a point is, you know, if they're in your classroom, that decision has already been made. Um, so that's really where we as the teachers need to reach out to those helpers, find more information to, to make it work and to make it um, helpful for the kid and make it accessible to kid. And then again, if you if you do have genuine concerns to to voice them, but do so in a way that's always student first and not, well, this is really hard for me or this is really tricky. And, I, you know, I, it, it's a it's a it's a double edged sword. It's a really tricky subject to navigate. Um, but the reality is all students deserve music education. Um, and sometimes that makes it hard on us to learn new skills and to try things in a different way. But I think mm -hmm. that's something that we are obligated to do. Yeah, so I think just use it as a motivation to, hey, this is where literally everybody above me and around me feels like this kid needs to be, so let's make it the best place for them. Um, and that's hard, and we see ourselves um, sometimes, and we get kind of um, muddy in our vision. Um, and we all know this, and we're doing a better job of talking about this, but we can do a much better job, you know, still of supporting each other and helping each other in that. Um, and that's what I hope to do is just to, to help just keep giving more tools and ideas to, to help with that. But um, yeah, if they're there, let's, let's make it the best place for them the best that we can. All right. So if I'm correct, we have one more section of the IP, am I right? Yes. Have it kind of very perfect. This is probably going to be your most helpful section, I think. Um, and that's the accommodations, the accommodations already made for a student. And there's a whole list of things um, that go into this. Um, like literally I had a, a three credit college course on this. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot in accommodations. The thing is you don't have to write them. You don't have to pick them. You don't have to create them. It just helps you to know what they are so that you can implement them. Um, well, not just helps. You need to know what they are so that you can implement them because, um, we need to be compliant to the to the IEP and, and the goals in there. Um, so accommodations can be anything from um, they have a an assistant with them. They need extra time. They are um, in your classroom only part of the time, not the whole time. They um, have physical accommodations. They have their AAC devices. They have... Um, and they have a buddy, they have, there's, it just goes on and on and on. Um, so knowing the accommodations, I think is probably the most essential part for you um, from the IEP. Um, if you're only going to look at one thing, look at that. Um, that's where your safety concerns are going to be met. That's where um, you're going to learn how they're learning. Um, you're going to learn how they're learning in their um, more specialized environments, and then you can try to take as much of that as you're able to and apply that to your environment. Um, you're going to learn that you have one assistant coming with um, 
two or three kids, how can you help them engage the kids? What jobs can you do? Because if you don't tell those people what to do, a lot of the times they're not going to get too involved. Um, and I was one of those people. Um, and no one ever told me what to do. I never knew what was going on. So I was just kind of fumbling through the class um, instead of knowing what was coming next and being able to get ahead of whatever behavior or situation or um, ability or lack of ability to participate would be happening. So I wasn't, I was was having to scramble to, to keep this kid involved instead of already knowing how I was going to do that. If that makes sense. I feel like I use a lot of words there. Um, For sure. I, this is the part of the IP, like I said, that, you know, or like you said, that can be incredibly directly applicable because like we've talked about earlier, there are parts of this in the education, you know, adaptations, modifications that we are required to implement. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are also some things that might be something they get for reading instruction um, that could be incredibly helpful in the music classroom or could be incredibly helpful for specific activities. Or, you know, if it says they're able, you know, if they have certain things for, um, you know, physical education, you know, obviously if we're doing, um, you know, big gross motor things, that could be really helpful in our environment too, even if it's not something that we are technically, quote unquote, required to follow in that aspect because it's not written, focused on the music classroom. It can be really helpful for our students um, sometimes, depending on the goal, depending on the student, depending on the situation, obviously. Um, But like you said, this is definitely one of those areas that you should be looking at the most. Yeah. Um, and we can we can keep I mean there's a million things we can do and I feel like in other things that we've done in the past in the summit and in our other podcasts we've gone over some really specific examples of things to do I'm always willing to talk about that and I believe you are too and you have a lot of experience at this point um, and and things to share in that area um, so I it, to review I think the two hot spots that you need to look at are um, where are they currently performing? So their present level of performance and the accommodations. So I would focus on those first, but that services part, the helper part, I really think that, um, that would be a huge tool for you. Um, if you will, if you'll jump out and use it, um, if you need to bake some cookies, if you need to, to write some handwritten notes, to, to make some connections with those people, I promise it will be well worth it. It will, in the long run, save you some time and frustration. I, I love that. So beyond just tracking down IEPs, what is something that a teacher can do in the next week or so to start the process or to continue the process of creating a more inclusive music classroom? Um, so let's say they've already tracked down the IEP. They have it in their hands. What would your suggestion be of something super actionable that a teacher do to start that journey? Um, I would say don't pressure yourself to, to just have it all right away. Um, and I, I don't want you to feel like, oh, I have this information. This is great. Now I have to like do it all right away. Um, special education, especially for people who didn't spend four years in college studying it, um, it, it, it's a learning curve and it's beyond what you're used to doing most likely. Um, so don't expect yourself to just, just go in and, and have it all and, 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 
be able to accommodate everything all at one time. Um, I just, I keep saying these things because my fear is, um, that, that you'll get, I mean, this page, I can't remember if I've said this yet, but this IEP that I have in front of me is 10 pages long. And I, I don't want you to feel like you're just going to like jump into, to it and, and knock it out. Um, give yourself grace and time and remember that what you're doing is more than what you did before and what more than most are doing. And that our goal is to help these kids progress. Um, but you can't do it all. <laughs> um, so I, I think get your hands on the IEP, um, start reading over those main components and then figure out for the next quarter, two or three activities that you can incorporate that would meet the needs of multiple students. Um, because you have multiple students, I would, I would make a list cause I'm like a big, like I always have stuff on my whiteboard and stuff. I would make some categories and be like, okay, these three students kind of have these things in common. What can I do that would include them um, where they're at? Because you'll see that. You'll see that if you have a, a big group of students, that there's going to be some similarities. And there's going to be some similarities in things that they're currently working on or already know that you can go back to those things. Um, it doesn't have to be a new challenge for them. It's just a new way to include them because you're going to want to include, uh, not include, you're going to want to increase their participation because if you haven't done any of this yet, then they're not even used to being active in the class. Make your goal small um, and, and building on each other to reach that bigger goal. Don't just jump into the big goal. Um, you will overwhelm yourself and that will just move everybody backwards instead of forward. And before we get, before we kind of wrap up this episode, I do want to talk a little bit about the, the st systemic problems that are in education, because I know we are all asked to do so much. You know, as music teachers, we have hundreds of students and we're expected to differentiate it hundreds of different types of ways mm -hmm. with very minimal planning. Um, so I, I don't want to, to negate the fact that we are often set up to fail in certain ways. Um, but I think that there are often small things that we can do to remove barriers to access in many different ways that can allow students to be successful regardless of, you know, you're not necessarily differentiating for each student, you are mm -hmm. kind of building your toolbox so that mm -hmm. when you have a specific student that is struggling, then you can apply that that differentiation or that you when you're planning your lessons, you can automatically build those in. So mm -hmm. it's not necessarily taking a lesson and tweaking it. It's making your lessons more accessible to begin with. Um, I, I guess what I want to say is, you know, I'm giving you permission to be frustrated with the the task at hand sometimes, yes. but that doesn't mean it's not an important task. Yeah. Um, definitely advocate for support, advocate for more resources, advocate for further training from your district administrators. Mm -hmm. But when it comes down to it, our students deserve to be able to access the curriculum in the music classroom just as if they would in any other classroom. Yeah, so a couple really practical things for that. Um, one, like I just said, group those kids up. Like, 
group your activities up. Maybe they're not in the same class, but you can create the same activity for multiple students. The other thing is with special needs kids, repetition is essential um, for them to learn most of the time. I mean, usually when there's like a cognitive delay, you're going to have to repeat. So use the same activity. Don't feel like you have to reinvent the will every single time you teach a new concept. Use the, the same activity with different targets or different pictures or different words or, or whatever you're doing. Um, I talk a lot in, in a couple of other things we've done about receptive and expressive language. And then that's kind of the, the building block of where we start kids off um, from a therapy perspective. Have one activity that's a receptive um, activity where they have to find, touch, um, choose, um, just vocabulary or a rhythm pattern or um, sight, uh, sight reading notes or whatever you're working on. Um, and then have another activity where they have to say in some sort of way, whether that's sign language, verbally, um, using an AAC, um, or, or even matching can be an expressive form. Um, and just go with those until you start to feel more comfortable with what you're doing and the kids start to pick up on it, um, it's okay. Repetition is good. Um, so it's okay if they're doing the same thing over and over because what you'll find is if you keep trying to reinvent that will and keep trying to redo a thing, you're going to be tired. They're going to be frustrated because they're not learning the material. They're learning the activity because they, they can't necessarily do both. Um, so you don't want to keep reteaching an activity every single day or every single week, however often you have them. Um, you want to teach new concepts and build on, on the same concepts. So use the same activity. It's okay. Um, and they'll still learn. So Stephanie, I will be sure to um, link our past conversations in the, the show notes pod, or the podcast show notes. Um, but I know there are definitely going to be people that would love to connect with you more online and continue to this discussion. So where can my audience find you online? Yes, I would love that. I've started mentoring a couple of people recently, um, and that has really been super fun, um, encouraging, and I think helpful to all of us. Um, and you, if you're interested in that, you can just shoot me an email at melodymakers850 at gmail.com. And then on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, it's melodymakers850. All right. And I will be sure to include links to that as well. Stephanie, thank you so much for continuing such an important conversation with me and sharing it with my audience. I really appreciate all that you do for your students as well for the students of the teachers that you help mentor in so many different ways. Awesome. Thank you always for giving us a platform to talk about this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Stephanie.